Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. Hello and welcome to The Tonight Show. Taoiseach Micheál Martin says there are no plans to delay further reopening despite the rapid rise in the Delta variant cases here. Our political correspondent Gavin Riley will bring us a political digest of the day. Editor-in-Chief of the Irish Journal of Medical Science, Professor Bill Tormey joins us to discuss Delta variant concerns and independent TD Verona Murphy on why people have apparently lost confidence in the government's strategy. Our Dublin-based South by-election debates continue with Fianna Fáil candidate Deirdre Conroy and Fine Gael's James Gagan in the hot seats tonight. And later, one of Ireland's top GA referees, David Goff, will join us to discuss Dublin Pride Month and how far the GA has come in the past 24 months for LGBTQ plus inclusion. Get in touch via Twitter with the hashtag TonightVMTV. First tonight, we're joined by Virgin Media political correspondent Gavin Riley. And Gavin, the first thing I want to ask you about this evening is the concerns that seem to be growing about the Delta variant. What is the government reaction to the possibility that it might have to slow down the further reopening of society? Officially speaking, Matt, there isn't very much recognition that there might have to be a slowing down of society. There was a briefing uh, secondhand from Tony Houlihan to the Cabinet today from Micheál Martin and Stephen Donnelly. And although we are told that they were fairly cautious about things, right now there doesn't appear to be any uh, recognition or any sort of attitude within Cabinet that things need to be slowed down. That although uh, the general percentage of cases that are accounted for by the Delta variant has risen pretty rapidly, that overall the case numbers seem still fairly manageable. They're at the lower end of any pre previous projections, hospital numbers and ICU numbers are also still uh, broadly at a manageable level. So they don't see any reason not to go ahead with the reopening of indoor hospitality in two weeks' time yet, but there is a crucial yet. They are recognising that things can change very quickly. And if you think it's only the other side of the weekend, Tony Houlihan was issuing statements talking about the near or effective elimination of COVID-19 for people who had been vaccinated. Now we're talking about a strain which has the potential to still do quite a lot of damage for people who have only had one of their two doses. So the cabinet, I think, is very mindful about how quickly things can change. And it's very notable that uh, that the decisions from cabinet about whether to go ahead with the decisions on July the 5th will only be taken three days before they're supposed to actually take effect, a cabinet meeting uh, on Friday of next week, which only gives three days wriggle room, as opposed to the usual prospect that we've had for the last couple of reopenings, where they've made the decisions a week or two in advance. So evidently, they're pretty mindful that things can change fairly rapidly and they don't want to announce a decision too far ahead of time in case they do have to revise it before the date actually comes. We'll have more of that in just a little while, but something else that has come back roaring onto the political agenda in recent days is the issue of the new National Maternity Hospital on the St Vincent's campus. What has gone wrong for the government in relation to that? 
Uh, what's curious about it is that it hasn't necessarily had anything change about how it's all been handled. Really, there hasn't been anything salient which has developed anew inside the last year and a half or so. It just seems to have been a, a grassroots campaign which has propelled some of the previous concerns back to the political agenda. And, it, and it's on, in that light that it was particularly striking. We saw that statement today, uh, this afternoon, from the St. Vincent's Hospital Group, which were effectively pointing out that their stance hasn't changed much in the last couple of years. They still believe that the, the new National Maternity Hospital will not be subject to any religious influence. They're pointing to governance arrangements whereby the, the Department of Health, the Minister for Health, will have what's called a golden share, which effectively stops the hospital from being sold or being transferred in any way without the official approval of the government. So as far as they're concerned, really, nothing has changed. I think what is particularly significant is the uh, concern Leo Varadkar mentioned last week about the ownership of the hospital and exactly how all that will work, particularly when it comes to the ownership of the land uh, and was very salient about the statement this afternoon is say Vincent saying that they're not prepared to countenance the sale of the land. They think if the whole logic behind building the new hospital on the site of St. Vincent's was this idea of co-location, of ease of transfer from patients between the, the formal hospital and the maternity hospital, they say that needs to be underpinned by common ownership or else it wouldn't work. There's quite a lot of people, it has to be said, who are cynical about that, but nonetheless, that is Vincent's position. So we'll wait and see what the government says back to it. And we'll have more on that as well. One final thing to you, Gavin. Uh, the new DUP leader is to be Sir Geoffrey Donaldson. What's the government reaction to that? Is this a man they believe that they can do business with or is he going to be a more difficult operator? No, there's been a sense, I think, in government circles today or even for the last couple of days as they presumed that he would probably be the eventual successor to Edwin Poots, that he is someone with whom business can be done. I think there's slightly more uh, scepticism or reticence within government circles is uh, what might be going on uh, in the broader picture of unionism and whether Jeffrey Donaldson might be backed into corners by others within unionism and loyalism who just don't believe that there can be any functioning of Stormont for as long as there are concerns around the Northern Ireland Protocol. But certainly Jeffrey Donaldson, as it stands himself, he's generally seen as although someone who is you know quite strident in his beliefs about unionism and Northern Ireland's place as part of the UK that he is someone who is a pragmatist who wants to get deals done who is prepared to use the vehicles provided for within the Northern Ireland protocol to get whatever changes are needed to be done but again it's a case of trying to find some solutions that work to everyone but they do believe that there is a partner there to be had as long as there are solutions that can be come up with. Thank you very much, Gavin Riley, for joining us. Now, joining us here in studio, Dublin-based sought by-election candidates Fianna Fáil councillor Deirdre Conroy and Fine Gael councillor James Gagan. And joining us via Skype is the independent TD Verona Murphy and the editor-in-chief of the Irish Journal of Medical Science, Bill Tormey. But I'm going to start with you, Deirdre, because we heard Gavin tell us there that last week Tony Houlihan was talking about elimination of COVID for the vaccinated. And suddenly today we're hearing grave concerns about the spread of the Delta variant and yet the Taoiseach seems happy enough to go ahead with the continued reopening of society. Are you happy with that approach been taken? Um, well, the best defence against this COVID-19, including the Delta variant, is to prevent it from spreading and that's what we are um, trying to do. We're making sure that people are getting their vaccinations. Um, the but not everybody is going to be vaccinated by the 5th of July. So would you be happy if you want to stop the spread of the Delta variant to be opening more things to people? Well, it comes up on the 5th of July and it is absolutely the public health service that is in charge. They advise the government and fit, uh, an effort chart um, advises the government. So that is where we... Um, it is now the 22nd of June. We still have to wait and see. The difference being, though, that it is the middle of the summer, that people may not be just dying to get indoors and that there is such um, um, 
very helpful um, dining outdoors in Dublin, etc., where people, you know, in the middle of summer, it's not a major issue if this changes at the 5th of July. But we are all very concerned and it is... Um, you, you seem to imply there that you regard ENFET as making the decisions that effectively the government rubber stamps the recommendations of ENFET. Is that the correct way of going about things? Well, they are the experts and the government will then be in, in communication, um, participation with them. But definitely, yes, um, that is the expert advice on health care here in, in especially all of this to do with COVID. Do you agree, James Gagan, that effectively ENFIT calls the shots and that the government just acts on what it's told to do? Well, I think the first thing to say is that NAFIT are meeting on Thursday. They're going to consider the current risk of transmission when it comes to the Delta variant. Look, I think it, we have to be straight up here. It, it does seem clear that the Delta variant will become the most common strand in this country. But the first thing to say on that is that 60% or over 60% of the adult population has now been vaccinated. Um, it's also important to one know... One shot, not it, necessarily One shot, shots. correct. I mean, 35% of the country has now been fully vaccinated. It's also important to point out that currently um, the UK have been able to maintain um, the dining that they currently have in the teeth of the, the Delta variant being the most dominant strand. So what we have to do is monitor what's taking place in the UK. Um, I, I note what the Tonishta and what the Taoiseach has said in respect of no change as matters stand, but we have to monitor what's taking place and NAFID are going to meet on Thursday to consider how the transmission is, is affecting it in, in other jurisdictions where the Delta already is the dominant strand. But the vaccination programme is going very well. You know, would you not have fears about what happened last Christmas, that there may have been mistakes for economic reasons and because of societal pressure to open up and that the government got it wrong and that that could be, mis that could be done again? Well, the, look, I think there's acknowledgements that there were decisions taken at Christmas time um, that, that were regrettable. But we are in a different space now in the sense that there are 60%, as I say, of the country that have received one dose of vaccines. 35% of the country are vaccinated. Uh, but the other major issue is that we haven't seen any increases in hospitalizations in the UK where the Delta variant already is the dominant strand. That's what has to be monitored in terms of the potential risks uh, for this country. And at the moment, those risks do not appear to be evident. But obviously, it's incumbent on NAFIT to advise the government. That's what they do. They advise the government to consider those risks. But as matters stand, um, there's nothing to say that we will change the current trajectory that we're on in terms of the reopenings. Professor Bill Tormey, in your view, are there reasons to be fearful of the Delta variant or could such fears be overdone? Well, I don't regard ENFET as a particular expert group. That's the first thing I want to say. I think their record has been patchy, to say the least. Um, the best uh, display of information that I've read so far recently is in yesterday's Irish Times, written by Kingston Mills, where he explains the whole thing in a very, very cogent and detailed manner. The problem at the moment is that we have given AstraZeneca vaccine to a large percentage of that 61% who've been vaccinated. And the evidence is that the Indian or the Delta variant uh, is only, if for one dose only, only sorts out about 59, 60%, which leaves 40% uncovered for actually getting the disease. The, there's a difference between getting the disease and being hospitalised or being ICU'd by the disease. Most people with the disease stay at home and get over it. And 
Um, the other thing that we're not doing at the moment is we're giving AstraZeneca, Matt, to people and we're not using a second dose from one of the RNA vi vi uh, versions, which would be Moderna and the Pfizer vaccine. So what we should be doing is moving second doses to Moderna and Pfizer in the interest of public health uh, because they're shown to be far more effective in terms of the antibody response in the immune system to the vaccines. But NIAC has not recommended that, so that isn't going I to happen. No, we've had the, the entertainment of Dr. Olan uh, opposing um, do-it-yourself uh, antigen testing. And in last Sunday, Sunday Independent, Professor Luke O'Neill reported on what's happening in detail in Canada. And that attitude has been demolished. The purpose of these tests is to isolate everybody who gets a positive. It's not a rule out test. It's a rule in test. Just because you have a negative doesn't mean you don't have the disease. But if you do have a positive, you're very likely to have the disease. So you should be isolated and that will stop the disease spreading. Which is what a different issue to the AstraZeneca one. I want to bring in independent TD Verona Murphy as well on this. Verona, the majority of the public, according to the last opinion poll published in the Irish Times, are strongly supportive of the way the government has handled this COVID crisis and relied upon ENFIT for its advice. So why are you critical of it? Well, because opinion polls are just that. It doesn't, it's not a broad reflection on what the uh, situation is. And I think we've got to, we're in a very different place now uh, to where we were actually in December. And we have had quite a successful vaccine rollout. There are issues, and Dr. or Professor Thorme has outlined many of them. I have a lot of constituents in the 60 to 70 bracket who are very concerned that uh, there is such concern about the Delta variant, but there is no big push in which for them to receive their second jab. So that is concerning. And I think that's one of the things we need to get to grips with if we are to contain the virus. We need to protect that vulnerable age group. And it may be that we end up using one of the mRNA vaccines uh, as the second jab, but we should get a move on. Equally, government actually have been behind the curve. And when you suggested that we lock down, Matt, it was actually because our test, trace and isolate system collapsed. So I would very much hope that that is something that government, again, have got to grips with. We shouldn't be looking to uh, change our date from the 5th of July. We should be ensuring that we have systems in place that we never have to go into lockdown again because people are over lockdown. We were on variant uh, D for Delta. We've had variant B. You know, there's 24 other letters in the alphabet. And Professor Thormy may verify that we could well see this virus mutate through all of the alphabet. So we will be living with COVID and well, it's something that we that. need to get to grips with. Bill Matt, Tormey, does, yeah. if, if it does mutate, are we going to be able to cope with that? Will the existing vaccines be able to cope with a change in the nature of COVID? The first thing you never do, Pat, or Matt, in this stuff is speculate. You have to wait and see what happens with new mutations because they behave differently. And the reason that they're new mutations is they survive 
better than their predecessors. So as part of the Darwinian part of nature, where, people, where infections evolve, they evolve to survive. So the vaccine, uh, or sorry, the virus, the coronavirus will continue to mutate and will survive and survive and survive. And the vaccinator, the, va the developers of vaccines will have to change vaccines as these things go along. And there's a large scientific effort at the moment worldwide to make sure that we can, as so far as you can predict, um, we, that there are vaccines that will take care of these things. And just, Matt, you know yourself that every year there's a new flu vaccine. Why? Because there's been mutations. And we try and guess what the mutation is and cater for that. The other thing, Matt, that's never been discussed by our uh, expert groups are the HEPA, that's the highly efficient particulate filters, which have been used to keep, which are used in airplanes to keep the, um, the planes clean in, from an air point of view. And that's why there's been so few infections on airplanes. And there's an article in the April edition of the Journal of the Royal Society of Medicine in the UK outlining what should be put into all schools to clean air so that you can open colleges, open schools. Here we're way behind the ball, the eight ball. And I think there's a professor, Hegarty, an associate professor in UCD, Department of Agriculture, who has a lot of expert knowledge on all of this. And in my opinion, should be consulted by the Taoiseach and he should follow her advice, which happens to be truly expert. Okay, let me go back okay, to you, Deirdre. Professor Kingston Mills has been a regular in this programme. He's not a guy who's given to scaremongering and he's very much in favour of opening up society. But he is very worried about the Delta variant and particularly people who got the AstraZeneca vaccine, the 60 to 70 year olds, also healthcare workers and also people under the age of 60 with underlying conditions who haven't had a second dose. And even if they get a second dose, he's worried it won't be good enough to deal with the Delta variant. Should the government be insisting that other vaccines are given to people? Um, absolutely. I have heard um, Paul Reid speak about this um, on the radio um, last week, that it, the AstraZeneca was to be stretched out further, which is not fair for the people now that are realising what this, the, um, the Delta variant uh, is affecting. So, it, it so it's been brought back to eight weeks, but the issue is rather than using a second dose of AstraZeneca, Professor Mills and others say, use a second dose of something else. And NIAC hasn't agreed to that, should it? Well, if it's correct, then if, if, if our um, health service agrees with it, it should be. Um, although I have also heard on the radio this morning, which I'm really quite surprised about, that apparently there are people um, going on holidays or going out for dinner who are um, not going for their second vaccinations because the, the appointments don't work. It is so important that everybody takes this on, but also that NEFET, HSE, brings the second vaccination closer and faster to everybody. And there's also been suggestions, James, that younger people should be offered the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, which isn't available to the over 50s, to get them vaccinated more quickly. As a younger person, would you agree with that? Uh, well, if I could just go back to, because I did actually speak with Professor King, Kingston Mills just on the campaign trail uh, yesterday evening, and, you know, I wouldn't like the message to go out, first of all, that NIAC aren't considering this option in respect of a booster vaccine. Professor Karina Butler has made clear that there's a study currently taking place in the UK on the impact of a booster that would have if you if you were to get an MNRA vaccine on top of your first dose of vaccine. But they've also made clear that 
um, taking your second dose of vaccine is better than not having a second dose of vaccine. And NIAC have said that they're going to report on that at the end of June. And Angela Merkel, you may have seen in the news today, she got an MNRA vaccine on top of her first dose of AstraZeneca vaccine. So it does seem to me that there are changes afoot from NIAC, but it's really important that we follow the science. NIAC, you know, there was a lot of criticism when NIAC took AstraZeneca off the market for a short period while we assessed the science, what was taking place in other countries. We followed the science throughout and we must continue to follow the science. But as I say, it's clear that NIAC are looking at this. But, but to answer about the young, the young people, um, you know, what's really important again, and I just repeat the issue, it, it is so important that we that everyone registers a vaccine who can register for vaccines right now. They take the vaccine that is offered to them, but we do have to trust Professor Karina Butler, trust NIAC, because they have made the right decisions uh, to date, and I, and I have great faith in them making the right decisions as we move forward. Just a quick final word from you, Verona Murphy. Do you think that when we get to a situation that hopefully when indoor dining resumes on the 5th of July and we move towards crowds going to matches and concerts, do you think are we at the stage that this crisis is almost over or would you be fearful of the so-called fourth wave and how people would handle that? No, I'd be fearful how the government handle it is what will cause the fourth wave, Matt, because we have still consternation in relation to antigen testing, which we know is the fastest simplest way to contain the virus. It's a nearly diagnostic tool. It worked in the driver fraternity and it, it was 100%. No driver was identified as positive that wasn't and no driver was identified as negative that wasn't and it was carried on for months. We need to put these things in place. We need a proper, effective test, trace and isolate system that will stand up to pressures. We need to ensure that our ICUs are absolutely resourced as they should be, both with beds and personnel. And I think we'll be, we're always going to be under threat fourth wave. But what we can't do is resort to lockdown. And I can tell you, public health is a lot more now than just this pandemic. We have mental health issues on the increase. Today we're reading in the newspaper a 43% increase in domestic violence. We have cancer screening waiting lists gone through the roof. We'll have late diagnosis for cancer patients. So the second line effects of government's inaction and being behind the curve will mean many more deaths okay. from things besides COVID. So we our, do have to get to grips with it. Okay, our thanks to Independent GD for Rona Murphy and Professor Bill Tormey for being with us. After the break, our Dublin-based out by-election debates continue with Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael candidates here in the hot seats. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today.
Welcome back. Now, we're continuing our Dublin-based South by-election debates, and Fianna Fáil Councillor Deirdre Conroy and Fine Gael Councillor James Gagan are here with us in studio to discuss the issues affecting their constituency, which are also very mainly national issues as well. And I want to start with you, James, as a member of the board of the National Maternity Hospital, to find out what exactly is going on in relation to the new building at the Vincent's Hospital site. Should the government move in, compulsorily purchase the land to take complete control? Yeah, well, the first thing to say, I suppose, look, I, I'm a member of the board as a, as a Dublin City Councillor. I was elected to the board. Um, I have two young boys myself. I had... Um, my wife had a bit of a troubled pregnancy with her, with her first child and um, as a result I had a big strong interest in maternity services and that's why I got on the board and it's been a real privilege learning about the work um, that the hospital staff do, particularly for people who have had difficult situations and what I'm determined um, both you know, as a, a potential TD um, and, and as a member of the board as I currently am is that we absolutely need the new National Maternity Hospital the current National Maternity Hospital, um, you know, is not fit for a modern delivery of, of babies. And it's not, it's not fit for, for even just for, for comfort uh, for women who are having babies um, in our hospital and for birthing partners. The issue that we now find ourselves in um, is that, thankfully, it is absolutely clear from a legal standpoint that in the new National Maternity Hospital, all procedures that are lawful in this state shall be carried out in this state. And there doesn't even appear to be any dispute on that amongst those um, who are concerned about the, the current changes. The final issue in respect of the new National Maternity Hospital is the land. It's the ownership of the land and whether or not the land is leased to the state or whether or not the state, in fact, own that land. And look, the Taunashta... Um, has expressed his concerns about the fact that the state uh, doesn't own the land underneath the hospital. Obviously, it owns all of the buildings and all of the infrastructure. Um, and I think that's a legitimate concern. And there is a concern in, in the general public as well. So if the sisters who are in charge of it won't sell the land, why not have a compulsory purchase order as you have with other major national assets such as roads and whatever? Well, I think what's happening now is that um, the fact that we're now finally reaching the stage where you know, the, we're at the last, the last hurdle, there is a public discussion taking place. And that public discussion is reflective of the changes that we've had in, in our society o over recent years. And I think those voices have to be heard in that process. And I think that's really what the Taunish is talking about. How can we restructure the ownership? How far can we take this? I think there's there seems to be absolute agreement, though, um, on all sides, that the maternity hospital has to be built on this site. What it's about seeing is how can we ensure that the public ha have, have better ownership of the land okay. that the hospital is going to sit on. How do you solve this one? Um, well, Finnfold government is is totally committed to this new maternity hospital out in St Vincent's, and um, in terms of as um, we were al already aware of that, it isn't fully sold over to the state. It needs to be a state hospital. The grounds a state hospital. We cannot take any, there, there just cannot be any issues in terms of the... Why all is of it the, important to you that the state has complete control of the land on which the hospital is built? Um, for assurance of everything being taken, taken care of for all of the issues in relation... I mean, I've been born in the National Maternity Hospital. My children have been born there. I've had premature child born there. I've been so taken care of, but... Um, Legislation has changed since 2018 and um, the church has been much more in charge in the past and it cannot be a case like that now and the Fianna Fáil government are fully supportive of that. And also I have been in um, contact a lot about this with 
Dr. Peter Boylan, who is taking the protest against it. So I've, I fully understand the way he has explained and the way we are all notified that it is this minor, sounds like minor, but it's the fact that it, it's not in our ownership yeah. of the state. How confident would you be, given the massive cost overruns that we've had in the construction of the National Children's Hospital, that the National Maternity Hospital would be built according to budget and on time? I fully believe it could be. Um, Why? It, Based it, on the experience that we've seen in the children's hospital? In, well, indeed, the, that should certainly be a learning curve. And um, in terms of how it's, where it's being built out in Elm Park, out in that, that area, I, it's also, I would imagine, easier to access with the DART, etc., for people. So um, much more um, safer to get built in terms of not running up and the way okay. the, the other one James, I want to ask you uh, about your own political track record because you had a hiatus from Fine Gael. You left the party at a time when it was in power to join Renewa. Why? So I actually worked as, with Lucinda Creighton as a parliamentary assistant uh, for about a year. I just, I just left a job when she was still a member of Fine Gael. I admired the work that she had done as Minister for European Affairs. She set up Renewa. I was actually a trainee barrister. I stayed along. At the time when Renewa was established, um, it, its position on abortion was it had a position of freedom of conscience. Um, and, and that's a position that's now held by, by Fine Gael. I myself was a signatory to Lawyers for Yes. I voted to repeal the 8th. I didn't share the views um, that Lucinda shared in respect of social issues. I did respect her views um, when it came to the work that she had done as a but Minister of European Affairs. But your loyalty was more to her than it was to Fine Gael. Yeah. So why should we be convinced now that you are loyal to Fine Gael again? Well, I, look, I, she had a long track record in Fine Gael. I, I was at her very first convention. Um, it was a personal loyalty to Lucinda. I mean, that, that's, that's why I supported her. That's why I, I, that's why I supported her, even when she set up this, this new venture. Um, the minute she lost her seat, I re-engaged with Fine Gael. Actually, at the same time, I was working for a Fine Gael TD on the banking inquiry. Um, but I've now, I became a councillor for Fine Gael in May of 2019. Um, I, I, I campaigned to become the candidate uh, long before that, at the end of um, 2018. Um, and I, I suppose I joined Young Fine Gael in UCD when I was in college as a very young person. I went on to, to live a professional life, to be honest with you. I always said if I was going to enter politics, I'd do so with a career behind me. That's why, that's why I ran in 2019 uh, when I did have a career, and that's why I'm a councillor now. Um, and, and I still have a career now as, as I'm running for the Dáil, but I, but I want to do more um, at, at the national level when it comes to the delivery of public service. Director Connor, why are you in Fianna Fáil? Given that this is a party that many still hold responsible for the crash of over a decade ago, that we're still living with many of the consequences, why did you choose to join Fianna Fáil and run for it as a candidate? Um, yes, yes, I don't have any political background, but do, because of the fact that I'm the first person in Ireland to take a human rights case against Ireland, I'm... Started that in 2002 due to the very tragic fatal fetal abnormality that I, I um, had. So um, I had to bring that to the church and the state. And it took 16 years for the referendum to be um, uh, and for the for repeal the eighth to be amended. At that stage, I have gone through um, various work studies, I'm self-employed, and I thought if I have managed to put myself through this, um, I want to get housing crisis sorted. That's a very good reason to 
address Fianna Fáil because um, two very good... A lot of people would blame Fianna Fáil for the housing crisis well, that how, we have. However, so uh, we're talking about 2018 at this stage now, repeal, and um, the liberal approach that Michal Martin took at that stage to support it. And then I decided I have got to get the housing crisis. I can use wait, my if ability... You were, if you were to be elected TD for Dublin Bay South, how would you actually manage to help solve our housing crisis? Well, my experience my, uh, in the last 20 years, I'm a planning specialist on protective structures, so I could see what is not being um, regenerated, the amount of derelict buildings we have around the country, that there um, also in, re in the recent six months, the Minister for, um, for Housing has actually managed to support 3,600 boarded up houses to be um, provided for people. So that is one of the major things that we have so many empty buildings that can be provided for but in it, the housing is crisis. Is it not very expensive and labour intensive to do individual projects than, than, like that rather than constructing apartment blocks or housing estates? No, not necessarily because they're, they're, they're there. They're sitting there in towns and villages and, city, and especially throughout Dublin City. Uh, historic buildings, vacant ground that is just derelict that should have been dealt with over, over the last decade. Um, financial crisis, seeing that separately, there wasn't the construction ability to have that done. So because I specialise in housing, because I have been writing about it in the national newspapers since 2013, that is why I decided the party that got housing built for decades can get it done again. You're looking, James, to replace Owen Murphy as the Fine Gael TD in this constituency, the former housing minister who many people have castigated for his performance. What would you regard as his biggest failures that you would like to rectify if you were a TD? Well, the first thing I'd say is that, you know, there were two things that uh, Owen Murphy did establish, one being the Land and Development Agency and the other being the first cost rental, that's affordable rental homes on uh, Emmet Road, a, a project that me as a Dublin City Councillor, I've been able to see the development of. And there's going to be over a thousand homes on that site, discounted rent. Um, and what we're now seeing on Dublin City Council is City Council-led projects for housing. Over 3,000 homes I personally have voted in favour of. Regrettably, um, on one of those sites, the Oscar Trainer Road, um, led by, uh, by a Sinn Féin... Let's not get into the other political parties who are not here to that, That's fair enough. That's Let's fair enough. talk about yeah. what you've done yourself. That, that's fair enough. So, so there's three projects that Dublin City Council have directly delivered in terms of housing, and these are market-subsidised affordable purchase homes. It's public homes on public land so that working people, so someone who's in a small business or a teacher, can own a home for between 260 or 300,000 euro, let's say, for example, on the site in Odevany Gardens. And that planning application has already gone through. Okay, but you so we're now seeing some of the these things. development yes. agency. That's done very, very little since it was set up. Well, it, it, in Shangana, it has started, um, and then there's another project going to happen on the central, on the, the site of the central mental hospital. This marginal stuff by comparison with the promises we were given by Owen Murphy when he was in government. Well, the issue is, is that in 2016 we were building 5,000 homes. Um, we started to build up to 20,000 homes. We need 30,000 homes. The Tornista has set a target for 40,000 homes um, over, over the next three years. That would be about half of the homes that we were at one, one stage in this country. We were building 80,000 homes. The, that all of these promises are backed up with capital funding. 
We increased the budget for housing in this government by 800 million euro in the last budget. One in three homes are currently being built by the state. And in this constituency that, I, that I'm hoping to represent as a TD, we have a real opportunity um, in the glass bottle site okay. in Poolbeg, where over 600 homes are going to be developed at, at affordable purchase and a further 300 social homes. OK, there's one other topic I want to address to both of you. Sinn Féin today put down a motion in relation to the pension age being restored to 65. Would you support that, Deirdre? I find it quite strange that they have this mix of saying, well, 65 here and 66 in Northern Ireland. Can they not, you, you know, figure out what... Let's just talk be, to what, you about your position. Be, Do what? you believe the pension age should be 65 here in the Republic? Uh, it's currently 66 and it should not be 67. I have spoken with people about this on in the past where... Apparently, it was considered to be 67 in former government. But it was due to be 67 in 2021, 68 in 2028. There's a lot of people will put forward all the financial reasons as to why the state can't afford to be paying old age pensions at that age, given the longevity of people now with modern health systems. Um, well, I know the Fianna Fáil government at the moment is certainly um, supporting it at 66. But again, as I have spoken to people in the past on doorsteps, said that even if they retire at 65, and a lot of people want to keep working after 65, when they retire at 65, they're not um, refused some income. It is a different form of social welfare. And then the, um, their pension comes the next year. So OK, well, I'd better go to you, James, for equal time on this. Where, where do you believe the pension age should be and why? Well, well as you know, um, as part of the programme for government, we restored the pension payment and with, with no means testing or anything else um, or that you wouldn't have to sign on, um, you know, in, in, in what might have happened. And that happened, let's be honest, that happened because we listened to the people on the ground that happened in the election and it formed part of the programme for government. The next step that was taken as part of the programme for government is that there's a commission on pensions currently taking place. And what's happening now is Sinn Féin are essentially putting forward a promise that is unfunded um, and they're trying to unseat the work of the Commission of Pensions. Pensions is a very, very serious issue in this country. And people who are, who are going to have to fund those pensions, um, their voices need to be heard too in this process. And that's what the Commission of Pensions is all about. So throwing down a motion with no funding, you know, it's similar to them saying we're going to abolish this tax and that tax and we're going to replace it with a wealth tax that's uncosted, unfunded. Okay. It's, it's a similar type of throw it up in the air and see where it lands. But we've already protected 65 okay. girls. The other candidates standing so far in the Dublin Bayside by-election are Labour's Ivana Bacic, Claire Byrne for the Green Party, Lynn Boylan of Sinn Féin, Sarah Durkin for the Social Democrats, Bridget Purcell for Solidarity People Before Profit, Marae Tobin for Aintu, Justin Barrett of the National Party, Renewist Jackie Gilburn, and Independence Dolores Cahill, Peter Dooley, John Kyer and Mannix Flynn. The deadline for nominations closes later this week. We we'll leave it there. Our thanks to Deirdre Conroy and James Gagan for being with us. After the break, GA referee David Goff will be here to discuss pride in the GA.
Welcome back. Now, as Pride Month continues, we're joined by one of Ireland's top Gaelic football referees, the man who refereed the 2019 final between Dublin and Kerry, David Goff, to discuss the role sport has played in his life. David, thank you very much for joining us. I see there's been some new research published for the launch of Super Values Bring It On GA campaign. It's found nearly two-thirds of respondents believe diversity and inclusion in the GA will have benefits for the wider community. How has your own experience been? My own experience has been very positive since 2015. Initially, being banned to wear the rainbow wristband in Crow Park at the league match between Dublin and Tyrone in 2015 was extremely disappointing. But not too unlike what's happening in Germany at the moment, I made it out to be a political statement and therefore it couldn't happen. But the GA has moved on an awful lot since then and I'm thankful to say since 2019, right up until this week, they've done a huge amount to promote diversity and inclusion within the association. What do you think has brought about that change? Um, well, the sitting president at the time, John Horne, who was a secondary school uh, teacher, um, was very open to the idea of putting the LGBT agenda on the GAA's agenda. And within a very short space of time, when we spoke to John in January 2019, he initiated the GAA's first ever um, March in Pride in June 2019. He also hired the GAA's first ever diversity and inclusion officer, who is the first ever diversity and inclusion officer in any sporting organisation in the country. They also set up a working group to look at gender diversity. They initiated then the Rainbow Laces campaign in 2020. And only this week, we had one of their bigger sponsors, SuperValue, initiating the Bring It On campaign to highlight diversity and inclusion within the association. And how will it, will it be highlighted? Well, they're hoping to roll out initiatives through the diversity and inclusion officer, Jeremy McTavish, within the GA, education pieces and policies, and to, I suppose, shine a spotlight on those members of the association that might not fit what, what would be perceived to be the norm. From what age will that happen? Because if you see, for example, what's happened in Hungary in the last week, where they're banning the teaching of children about these issues, but how important is it, do you think, in the GA, from underage teams upwards, to in actually encourage the inclusivity and diversity? Well, from my understanding is that it's going to be brought in right from underage structures right up to adult, adult age. So they will be um, speaking to the coaches, including it in the coaching um, education programmes, and they'll be also um, using the Healthy Clubs initiative to roll out these policies and procedures into the clubs around the country. Do you think of a lot of players come out? I mean, you're, you're not the first. Donalogue Cusack and his brother and various others have in the past come out and have spoken about their own experiences and I think have found themselves very welcomed and accepted by everybody in the GA. But as I still, do you think, are there people perhaps hiding their sexuality who are afraid to actually come out? There are a huge amount of people, not only inside the GA, but in elite sport in Ireland that are afraid to come out. You only have to look at 64 inter-county teams, League of Ireland, we have an awful lot of international players play in the Premiership, we have four provincial rugby teams, uh, hockey, equestrianism, boxing. We could name a number of sports here and there are no elite gay male athletes coming out in those sports. I and mean, the question needs to be asked, why? Why are they struggling and what are the issues? What are the barriers? What are the hurdles that are stopping them to come out? Do you think teammates will be accepting? Absolutely. I have received nothing but huge support from my own colleagues on the refereeing panel. I found the media nothing more than positive, certainly here in, in this country. And my life has been positively enhanced since I came out. So I can't see any major barriers or hurdles, just perceived barriers. And uh, that's, that's what I feel the issue might be. On the pitch, though, have you ever experienced any homophobic comments? Now, I'm sure the players would probably be afraid to because you'd be in a position to send them off immediately. But particularly from fans on the terraces and whatever. It only happened once in an unfortunate situation in an All-Ireland final, a semi-final in 2016, where I made a very high-profile mistake that I didn't know 
I had made and leaving the field there was some homophobic abuse came from the stand uh, and that was a bit disappointing. But How it, did you react to a situation like that? What do you do in a circumstance? Well it was frightening and I had never um, experienced it before so I just put my head down and tried to get off the field as, as quick as possible. The frightening thing for me was that my family of umpires were with me and they possibly had never heard homophobic slurs or language like that before and it took me a little bit of time um, to get my thoughts together around it and to get back out refereeing again. Did anyone react on your behalf, like tell these people to stop what they were saying and doing? Oh, there were. There were a number of stewards there in Crow Park who did their job on the day and prevented it probably from getting any worse than it possibly could have. So what do you make of the international developments that we're seeing this week? And you mentioned about uh, the gay pride laces on the boots, but the idea that there was in Germany, in Munich, to light up the arena for the Germany-Hungary match tomorrow night, the mayor of Munich wanted to do it, and UEFA are saying, no, don't do it, it's a political act. Well, it was um, a political act because the mayor directly said that he wanted to send a message to the Hungarian parliament. So by doing that, he made a political statement. If he had have said nothing and just lit up the stadium, it would have been fine. Because only last week, UEFA allowed the German goalkeeper, Manuel Neuer, wear a, uh, an armband as captain in the pride rainbow colours. And they stated in their press release that they believed that the, the rainbow flag wasn't a political statement, but rather a movement they were willing to support. But the mayor himself made the the error and that's why we have the outcome that we have. But of course, ironically, it has led to a sort of an enormous amount of publicity. Other stadiums in Germany are going to be lit up even if the one in which the game has been played can't be. Yeah, that's true and that's going to be wonderful to see and I saw so many um, of the professional footballers tweeting pictures of the stadium tonight including Mario Goetze and, and many others uh, in support of LGBT issues in, in Europe. We also have an issue today in the NFL, in American football, the very first player, Carl Nassib, coming out as well. How influential and important do you think is that going to be in American sport? It's huge and I think um, it won't be great when we get to a time when this isn't newsworthy, but the reason it is newsworthy is because nobody has gone before him. And as a role model, if you are a role model, um, you, you increase visibility and his visibility will increase inclusion. It's not going to be by scoring the winning touchdown or, or, or catching the perfect pass, but by being given by being open and by living his life as a true person inside his probably very difficult sport. But that for children growing up within America is going to make a huge impression. We've been talking about people and in elite sports levels not coming out, perhaps hiding their identity. But how often do you think is that people give up on sport at an earlier stage because of these issues, don't engage in sports they might enjoy and love for fear of being exposed? And that's a hugely um, important point because a lot of young males drop out of sport very early on, particularly team sports, because they find the environment intimidating and they find that they don't fit in. But also they don't have the role models to look at to say that they can fit in and that they can achieve what they want to achieve inside those sports. So what are the things you think we should be doing here in Ireland now to help the LGBTQ plus community? Well, there's two things. We need greater visibility for LGBT athletes, first of all, but that's only 10% of the athletes in the country. There's a 90% of, of, of the athletes still playing are straight. So what sort of environment have they created that make people feel unsafe in, in coming out. And the silence from that side of the house is deafening. So they need to create opportunities for themselves to show that they're allies and that coming out in their sports is totally acceptable. And one final thing for you, for having publicly come out, was it 2015? Did that make life better for you in your sport? 
Absolutely. I, my life has been positively enhanced ever since I came out. I haven't taken one step backwards. I've achieved everything I wanted to achieve inside Gaelic Games and my sexuality never stood in the way of that. And I'm happy to say now that I'm David Goff, the referee, and not David Goff, the gay referee. And you were refereeing a match tonight, I believe. You're I was... busy again with games going on, are you? <laughs> Minor matches in Mead this evening. Yeah, it was fun times. Indeed. OK, David Goff, thank you very much for being with us here on the programme. That is all we have for tonight. Our programme is available as a podcast. Our next news is on Ireland AM tomorrow morning. Now, I'll be back here tomorrow night at 10 o'clock and then I'll be on the radio at Today FM tomorrow afternoon. So from all the late team here, good night and take care. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. quince.com slash style.